Michigan criminal defense attorney Bill Amadeo is standing by in cell block S. The jail visit starts now on Shiawassee Radio, live from the Cofield Oil and Propane Studios. The following is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. I am Bill Amadeo from Madison Amadeo and Grable and Associates. And the Shiawassee Six. Six. El Shiawassee says. And today. Today we're coming. I'm sorry, guys. It has been a hell of a week. And I have not stopped working. And I'm sober. I've been the oldest all day after the gym. I got more work to do. I really just want to watch college basketball. My practice are so screwed right now. But. Okay. People been asking about. The Sopranos situation. And um, we're going to talk about that today. We'll also talk about Vito Spadafore and Gloria Trillo. As I am a huge Sopranos fan, as you know, being an Italian from South Jersey, The Sopranos was required reading. And one of our dreams was to be on The Sopranos, and I kind of achieved that dream. We'll get into that. Um, I guess we should start with how it all begins. Oh, another shameless plug. Please listen to The Jail Visit, 7 p.m. on Shiawassee Radio. But before you do that, please Google me first. I like the people I like people to think I'm brilliant and attractive before they find out how weird I am. And The Jail Visit has been taking my lives and really displaying to the world how real weird I am. So Josh Strickland, thank you. But um, let's be real, man. Before I was successful, I would say stuff people just think I'm nuts. Now it's like fashionable, so... Google me first, pretend you're impressed, and then tune into the jail visit. All right, Sopranos. I am a kid bartending at Tropicana. And Tropicana has so many interesting things with my life. I bartended at Trop right after high school. Um, I bartended there when I couldn't get into law school right away. And so many things happened at Tropicana. And the casting called The Sopranos, that came because I was bartending at Tropicana. Let me tell you what happened. We're bartending a banquet. And the nerds are playing. The nerds are this band in South Jersey. And if you know South Jersey, the nerds were that ultimate cover band. People loved the nerds. And the Mert, they kicked ass for the live show. And they were swinging, singing a Sweet Caroline, and they stole the show, man. Like, everybody is just dancing and singing, and it was a good time. Hey, Nancy Gordon. And, um, you know, I'm cutting the fruit, I'm making the drinks, we're having a good night with tips. The nerds are jamming. And this one guy comes up to me and a couple of my friends. And he goes, hey, have you guys ever acted before? Like, no. Now, at this point in life, there were three of us that were approached. We don't really talk today, okay? One of us became me, whatever the hell that has become. One of them actually ended up getting connected through this audition. And one is a bartender in Jersey today. 
But here we are, these three young kids, teenagers, whole world in front of us. And this guy, who was affiliated with the nerds, tells us there's this casting call for The Sopranos. And I don't know. I'm excited. Now understand something. If you get picked to be an extra, the pay for the day is $48. And we had to drive out to North Jersey, New York for the set. Whatever. So the three of us, we get into the car. My little Le Mans, my little gray Le Mans from my teenage early 20 years. With the music blasting, and we're talking about our favorite Soprano episodes already, and we're trying out, and we don't know at this point. You know, the whole world's in front of us. We have no idea if nothing's going to come of this. It is going to be a life-altering decision. We just don't know. I mean, imagine looking back. Like, holy shit, the whole world's right in front of you. And this story has stood the test of time. My version of it. The other guys may have a different version. So we get up there. And let me tell you. Little spoiler alert. We got picked. We each made $48. I think we paid $128 for parking. So it wasn't a financial windfall. But we were trying out. And, um... They put you on these calls. They make you read these scripts. That's an all-day thing. And let me tell you, acting is real work. But we were just caught up in it. Like, this was the coolest thing in the world. Here's James Gandolfini. Here's Polly, and, and the whole crew is there. And you're a teenager. And you're actually on the set with these people. You're a poor kid from the hood. You drive up to your car you hope it doesn't break down. You try out. And now they're going to give you $48. I know you lost $80 in the process, but you're thinking, whoa, I'm on top of the world. And when you go back home, you're going to tell people you were on The Sopranos. Rick Goldie, if you're watching this, you have a lot more affiliation with The Sopranos than I do. But I got to tell you, this was pretty damn cool at my young age. So we're like, we're sitting there and we're, the, the scene which was cut is just me and two guys walking by. That's all it was, walking by. And I've, I've watched this episode so many times I cannot find myself. Never made the casting room floor, whatever they call it, but we were up there. But to me, what was more interesting was the after events. Um... Let me tell you about that. The guys in The Sopranos, some of them may have been mafia-affiliated. I don't know. But when you went to the bar at night, holy shit, they thought they were truly mafia members. I literally saw people kiss James Gandolfini's ring. Like, he was the king of his court. And this crew, the reason why... They were so goddamn amazing in this show. It's because they were just being themselves. Rick Goldie once told me that James Gandolfini, a.k.a. Tony Soprano, to make himself angrier for the part, 
he would put rocks in his shoes so he'd be pissed off. And it worked. And we're at this dinner and this event and the whole crew is there and they're laughing and joking and drinking and you are just a fly on the wall. You are a nobody, but you felt like you were king of the world. One of the guys I went with, he connected with this girl he ended up marrying. And his lead in with her was, hey, we were just on The Sopranos. So they started the relationship by him basically lying. He didn't tell her that we were extras who weren't going to be on the show. He didn't tell her we just made $48, which doesn't cover the cost of parking. But he led with that. The other guy was just, he partied way too hard that night. He was truly enjoying the moment. And I'm the sober one, because we all know the coolest guy in the room is the sober driver, right? But, um, yeah, I just, the whole night was just unreal. You know, you're driving back from New York, and you don't know if this is ever going to be anything. You don't know what's going to happen in the future. But I actually got a callback. Now, a callback is when they saw something in you. They wanted you back for something. Maybe it was to take out the trash. Maybe it was to be Christopher Montesandi's left-hand guy to get killed at a poker game with Sunshine. I don't know. But I did get a callback. And at this point in my life, I'm in college full-time. And I'm supporting Aunt Mare and Mom through bartending. So I'm taking 16 credits. I'm working 40 hours a week, sometimes 50 hours a week. My whole life was just college and work. And I didn't go back up there. Because here's the thing about acting. When you make it, whoa, you make it. But the road to get there is a road of financial difficulty. I'm sure I could have kept going on for $48 an episode and maybe got a bit part and joined the Actors Guild and all that. But, I mean, it wasn't really in my family's mantra for that to happen. No regrets, but, you know, I was paying the mortgage to the house in Ventnor. I couldn't keep going up to New York and North Jersey for these scenes, but it was a pretty damn cool experience. Let me tell you, James Gandolfini was a pretty cool guy. But if you put a camera in his face, today I could see Tony Soprano smashing a cell phone in somebody's face. He was just, he was Tony Soprano. Like, whoa, he really lived that part. And the whole crew, I mean, nice guys, but, you know, it was a rough bunch in my opinion. They were pretty interesting. So it's always been cool that I actually was in The Sopranos. I mean, you gotta think about this. Donald Trump told me to go to law school. I had a bit part in The Sopranos. There's been some really weird things that have happened in my life that makes for really good blogging. It doesn't always help with mental stability, but I mean, yeah, they were there. So, with that being said, I will tell you, my time on The Sopranos, albeit brief, was a life changer. It gave me a story to talk about the rest of my life. And that's what happened. Now, while I could no longer be in The Sopranos, <laughs> you like that? 
I want to talk about a couple characters because lately the Sopranos have been like reborn on social media. There is a lot of drama going on about the Sopranos, and we're all pissed off at how it ended, right? And by the way, if you're not pissed off at how the Sopranos ended, you are a complete idiot. Quote me on that one. Was Tony killed? That's the consensus, right? If Meadow could have parallel park, maybe she would have saved everybody. You know? When he looks up, what's he looking up at? Are they going to kill him while he's eating the onion rings? Alright. Let me stop. Because I think I've seen The Sopranos over a hundred times every single episode. One of my fondest law school members of bringing the guys over, like our clique, our inner circle in law school, and just watching The Sopranos all night. It was a big three-hour thing. And we just sat there and went through it over and over again. Obviously, with DVR, things have changed a little bit. But 2006 and Lansing at Village Green, Sopranos HBO was a big thing. I want to talk about Vito. Vito Spadafore. Because we're on the Sopranos kick. Because a friend actually got Vito to do a cameo recently. And let me tell you, he's a pretty funny guy. The real Vito. People really were hurt when Vito got killed. When Frank took Vito out. Caused a lot of issues. Um, people were really like shocked by that. The way it all went down. It was a horrible scene. Don't get me wrong. Maybe people were crying about how Vito went down. Before we really emphasize. You know show empathy for Vito. Let's talk about a few things. Let's remember this. And here's how you admire Vito right. Season one. He's Vince. This heavy set guy at the store who basically gets in front of line with Christopher. Christopher shoots the guy behind the stand. Vito was Vince and he was a nobody, but he did something, obviously better than me, when he was just an extra where he they made a character for him. And Vito becomes his beloved character. Let's remember a few things about Vito, right? Number one, he did shoot Jackie Jr. in the back of the head, right? It's a horrible scene. He sees Jackie Jr., he puts the hit on him, because Jackie and his idiotic crew killed Sunshine when they tried to rob the poker game, and they were on crank, and they could have just went to the Jersey Shore and gambled, but instead, they enter the poker game, Jackie Jr. gets killed. Vito did that. You can still see the scene, he comes up behind him, shoots him right in the back of the head. Not a great guy. But he was moving his way up to being this union tycoon, right? Let's also remember this. When Vito lost all that weight, he had planned to take Tony out. In fact, before he gets caught at the homosexual bar, he's on his way up, right? Let's not forget, he planned to kill Tony. So how much love do we have for Vito? But let's... To me, Vito could have been Vito. He could have owned his sexuality. He could have been this big-time union quote tycoon and did whatever he wanted, but then he ran into Finn. And we all know what happens at the construction site with Finn, right? Come on, guys. I was in this episode. This was a damn good episode. Vito is engaged, and I'll be, I'll careful right now, okay? 
He's engaged in a sexual act with the security guard. Finn comes into work early, and Finn sees him. So what does Vito do? Does Vito laugh it off? Does Vito try to deny it? No. He goes up the thin and threatens him in the porta potty, right? Bunch of shit. He tells Finn, we're going to the Padres game and it's bat day. Get there early. I don't want to miss the national anthem. Vito was forcing that kid to go to a baseball game with him for purposes Finn did not want to be involved with. Finn is scared shitless of Vito. Finn goes tell Meadow. Meadow tells Carm. Carm tells Tony. Tony brings um, Finn to the bada bing. He explains what happened, and the rest is history. I mean, if Vito would have just let Finn be, he might still be alive today. He was a scumbag, all right? And not because he's homosexual. Good for him with his sexuality. But he killed Jackie Jr. He planned to kill Tony. Then he threatens Finn? What do you think was going to happen if Finn showed up to that game? I, I don't know. When Vito leaves the wedding and he goes to the homosexual bar and he goes to the one where Sal is picking up money, he gets caught with the guy with the chaps. I can still remember, I was home from term break. My aunt and my mom are like screaming. Mom is a year from death. Aunt Mare is sick. And these two women that raised me we're sitting there watching Sopranos and see Vito getting caught in the village people outfit. It was still one of the funniest memories. And at this point, Vito holds ass. And at this point, you feel bad for Vito, right? It's like, okay. He can't be himself. He's going to get killed. He's running with the mob. He can't be true to his sexuality. So what's he do? He runs out to the middle of nowhere with a bunch of cash. And he gets in a car accident with the guy. And he says to the guy, hey, can I just pay you? We don't need to exchange insurance. What's he do? He kills that guy in the back. Vito killed two people in the back. Let's remember that. Jackie Jr. and the poor guy in the fender bender. Things get weird because season six, it became about Vito, right? Like the Raiders took this big turn. And Vito runs out to the middle of nowhere. And he pretends to be a sports writer. Here's what's really confusing. When he's pretending to be a sports writer, he was not knowledgeable about sports, and people start picking up on this. And he runs in the gym. And Jim was probably the love of his life. Johnny Cakes. Let me tell you guys. I don't understand why Jim fell so hard for Vito. If you watch the show, they, like, have instant chemistry and move in together like that. Thank you, Nancy Gordon. No, and by the way, I you know what? Vito was an interesting character. Okay, but tell me that Johnny Cakes was not too good for Vito. Okay, Vito is sitting up there. He doesn't have a job. 
Jim gets him a job doing basically handyman work. He screws that up. He's sitting there cooking for Jim. Jim's working at the friggin' diner, doing the volunteer fireman thing. And he falls in love with Vito? I mean, Jim could have thrown a dart in a bar and done better than Vito. And then Jim gets his heart broken because Vito leaves. And we know what happens then. Frank meets him at the hotel and that's the end of Vito. But I mean, I didn't get it. Like, my, I've always been frustrated. Like, why did Jim move in with Vito so quick? Vito's living under an assumed name. He's got no job. He's trying to be a sportsman. There's no shit about sports. And he moves him in, falls in love in like a two-week period. And then Vito leaves. <laughs> Just, I don't know. It, it bothered me. Yes, Nancy, I get it. It was about love, but come on. Johnny Cakes was way too good for Vito. Let's talk about Gloria Trollo. All right. One of Tony Soprano's many mistresses. Gloria Trollo's an interesting character. We know her demise is horrible. But let's start with this. Where does Tony meet Gloria? He meets her at his shrink. Now, I think everybody should be in therapy. I know my therapist helps me. But he met her at the shrink. They had instant chemistry. He changes times with her. You know, and I was always under the impression this was just me. Tony screwed up. He never should have laid a hand on her. No man should ever lay a hand on a woman. But I'm talking about the emotional connection here. I think he went with Gloria Trillo to piss off Dr. Malfi. That's what I think his move was. And, dude, I get it. I understand, but, you know, I mean, this did not work out well. They're on the boat. She's canceling her therapy appointment to go hook up with him on the boat. Okay, I'm going to tell you, it was pretty clear Gloria needs those sessions. This was a mistake. Um, but they end up together. He's in love with her at the zoo. And I got to wonder, did Tony love everybody but Carmelo? How did he fall in love with He beat Zelman's ass, broken up with his girl. The one with the one leg he was really into. Gloria Troll, he was head over heels for a minute. Things really took off in a bad direction when Gloria throws the stake in the back of his head. Now... I remember watching this with some of the law school crew. And she takes the stick and she throws a fastball and hits Tony. Now at this point, you know you have an unstable person, right? I definitely would have got out of that relationship right at that point. Unless she had glasses. Get it? Okay. The glasses fetish. Anyway, let's move on. But when Gloria takes his Christmas gift that he gives her on the boat and she throws into the water, all right, we have an unstable person going on here, right? Tony had a knack for picking crazy people. Sorry, Nancy. 
And I'll admit, in my younger days, before I found stability, glasses would have went a long way to overlooking mental stability. I'm sorry. Man, you give me a good-looking librarian type with some mental health issues. I was in back in the day. But anyway, I digress. When Gloria drives Carmelo for a test drive, oh my god, worlds are colliding. Tony did not handle that well. Remember when he went to the car dealership? and ugh, It was just a bad scene, man. I really felt bad when Patsy threatened to kill Gloria. Seeing Patsy's ugly face as potentially the last face she was ever going to see. And Patsy telling Gloria that it was over with Tony. She eventually kills herself. Then her ghost comes out. It was... It was bad times. At the end of the day, I gotta think. If Gloria would have just taken the gift that Tony bought her, not taken Carmelo on a test drive, and maybe just left a steak on the table, you know, I'm not saying it would have been a great love, but it would have ended amicably. And I gotta think if Vito never threatened Finn. He'd probably still be alive today doing his no-show jobs. And if I would have answered the goddamn casting call and kept making the $48, I mean, I would have been broke. But who knows? Guess we'll never know. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. This one, it's a tough one. It's been a long few days, obviously, at work. But um, Scott Zolber's birthday. Truly one of my best friends. Such a great guy. And last year, I did one about him. And we'll do one tonight. And um, I can't believe... Scotty, you're watching this, I'm sure. I can't believe you've been gone for five years. Wow. Five years. 2018. Let me tell you about Scott Zauber. Because... In this life, there's very few people who truly give a shit about you it's just a fact right there's people that need you there's people that want things out of you but there's very few people that are truly selfless there's very few people that actually put your needs before their needs it's the way of the world right i've always tried to be that person who puts other people first and one of the reasons for that is because Scott Zolber, in my opinion, he was that person. He was, even though we were the same age, a year older, I kind of looked up to him in so many ways. Let me tell you how it all started. We're in high school. And you guys have heard me talk about Margate and Ventnor assholes at length. And I'll tell you, I'll be real. Tonight I'm holding this football 
not because of the force of habit or a poker tell, but tonight I'm holding it for emotional support. This is going to be a tough one tonight. High school was hell. And I've talked about this at length. The Ventnor and the Margate kids one way. The Atlantic City and Brigantine kids another way. And socioeconomics was such a huge dynamic. Scott Zolber was a kid from Margate. He didn't have to be my friend, but he was. We bonded in journalism class sophomore year. We both gambled on sports together. We watched games together. We talked about life. We talked about our first loves. And this was a kid who didn't have to come to the ghetto, but he did. He used to pick me up so we could hang out and go shoot hoops. He was special. He was different. He was a kid who came from far more money than me. And when most of the Margate kids treated me like dirt, Scott Zolber treated me like a friend. And we formed this bond. We were so different. We had this insane connection. And when I went out for mock trial junior year, the Margate kids laughed their ass off. They never thought I would make the team. And one of my first defenders was Scott Zolber. Scotty told them he's going to make that team. And they're like, what are you talking about? There's a brilliance about Bill Amadeo, and you're going to see it at mock trial. It's like having somebody who you're close with doesn't owe you anything who sees town in you before other people did. And that was all. And as we were winning these mock trial tournaments, he always took pride in that. Because even though he was a Margate kid, his family didn't have the money of some of the other Margate kids. But yet, he was more affluent than my family, obviously, but we were bonded. It didn't matter if he was invited to parties, I wasn't. It didn't matter that his family had money and we didn't. All that mattered was we had this insane, close-knit friendship from the time I was 15 years old. I've always said this. And this has been a problem in certain areas of life. And it's easy to get lost in things as you move up the corporate ladder or whatever. If you weren't my friend at 15... Do you, I really want to be your friend at 45? Because the game changed. And before the game changed, Scott Zolber told me it was going to change. We went to the same college. We went to Stockton. We hung out a lot. We studied together. Our first fantasy football teams were together. We won a fantasy football league in 1997. We went to casinos together. We went to the Alki together. The Alki's where we used to lift weights together. And it was my place of freedom. For me, the Alki was escaping danger. For Scott, it was almost coming to danger. And when I bought my first house in Ventnor at 19 years old, Scotty helped me move. He was that guy. It's that person. And after college, you know, that we drifted apart a little bit.
After college, Scott got into law school. He went off to Rutgers. And he always was going to be a great lawyer. We knew this. I couldn't get into law school right away. Dyslexia was brutal. I couldn't do well in the LSAT. Scott went to Rutgers. I went to the casinos to bartend. And there were so many times I had just given up on this law school thing. It was like, shit, it's just not going to happen. And Scott would call me from law school. Say, hey, I can do it. You're going to be able to do it. He never gave up on me, even when I gave up on myself at times. He became successful. He just became this fantastic bankruptcy lawyer. And in that field, it's such a number crunch, you know, but he had compassion for people. He gave back to the community. And as I'm struggling, not getting into law school, bartending, work with the union, there was every reason in the world for Scott Zolber not to associate with me anymore. He was a lawyer and I was nothing at the time. And he never gave up on me. We stayed in touch. We talked all the time. We hung out all the time. And it was weird, you know, it was weird for me because I felt like a failure in front of him so often. You know, I'm mixing drinks 10 hours a night and studying this LSAT, and here he is making big money as a bankruptcy lawyer. And, you know, he never made me feel smaller than I was, but I just felt that. It was mixed emotions with Scotty. Part of me was grateful that this great lawyer was still my friend. Another part of me felt inferior to him. He never made me feel inferior, but I just felt that. We would go to social events together, and he always made fun of me for always liking girls with glasses. He always used to mock me for that. And one time we went to this social event, this Catholic singles thing with our friend Q. Q was my closest friend back home. And Q, very religious guy, great guy. And he thought Catholic singles was the way to go for a while. Now me and Scott go with Q to this Catholic singles thing. I want you to think about this right now. A young Bill Amadeo, who's a bartender, can't get into law school. A successful young lawyer in Scott Zolber and Q, a pharmacist in the making, go to a Catholic singles event. Scott didn't drink much, but when he drank, it wasn't good. Because he had this insane comedic wit that he would just fire out of left field. And we're at this Catholic singles thing. And he sees me talking to this one girl, and he hears me say, So, how long have you been wearing glasses? <laughs> a drunken Scott Zorber told this girl, Hey, he's got a fetish for glasses. Watch this guy. <laughs> he, he was just, he was hysterical. When I finally got into law school, when that finally happened, I told him about, I said, hey, I'm going to Cooley. 
and he gave me some of his old books. And he said, hey, I know it's been a struggle, but you got this. And um, throughout law school, we stayed in touch all the time. After law school, I had my first job in Jersey. We won't discuss who I had that job with. That's a story for another time. And that would definitely be it. Think of litigation. And the two partners at the firm were going at it. And the associate, me, didn't get paid. I remember getting fired from my first job and thinking, oh shit, I'm back in New Jersey. I'm sad as hell. And I'm going to ICL classes. Let me talk about ICL. The Institute of Continuing Legal Education. It's a bullshit thing. And um, what really hurt at ICL was I was the only one at these classes who was not employed as a lawyer at the time. And I'd go in there in my sweatshirt and do the class and all these people come in in their suit and ties. I remember saying to Scott, this is horrible. I feel like I'm that inferior person again. This is 2008. It's not that long ago. And he said, look. Pulled me to the side. He goes, your journey, who you are, has always been the rough path. It's never going to be an easy path for you. But when you get there, holy shit, you're going to light the world on fire. And hearing that from someone who was, who you wanted to be successfully, but who treated you as a peer, that was special. And I got through Ickle, and I started tutoring in Michigan, and I told him I had this plan. I'm tutoring for years, and he's always telling me, you know, you gotta be a big-time lawyer. You gotta go for it. And he always told me, I know you don't want to hear this, B, but criminal law. You are made to be a criminal lawyer, and I never wanted to do criminal law. It wasn't until Scott Zolber kept bitching at me about it, and Scott Grable made me an offer, that I said, okay, let's see what this is all about. And it changed my life, it changed my career, it changed everything. I would not be doing what I'm doing if it wasn't for Scott Zolber bitching at me to do criminal law. Every conversation, guys, B, I want you to do criminal law. I want you to do criminal law. This is what you got to do. My mom died in 2007. Scott was there. Yeah, Mayor died in 2015. Scott was there. And, um, it was at that point in 2015... There's only a handful of people that would even talk to me. Life is rough. I'm out of shape. I'm tutoring. I'm not making money. The woman that raised me has passed away. And Scott was always there to tell me, it's going to happen for you. You're going to get through the grief. You're going to get through the struggles. And that person, he was just my person, you know? It's just special. And when the career took off, I mean, he talked shit about it. He told people back home, I always told you what Bill Amadeo was going to do. 
he literally was such a cheerleader for me. There was this one girl in high school. Brutal. Like, she was just a miserable human being. Horrible to me. And it's kind of funny when you look at the scoreboard today. But back then, um, she was one of the it girls and I was a nobody. I was a poor white kid from the hood. After I won one of my first trials, Scott goes to her restaurant. She's a waitress. And he shows her the Google headline. I said, hey, guess you screwed up there, huh? And that was... That was Scott's way of being so eternally loyal. He had seen the worst of me. He seen me from poverty. He saw me when I couldn't get into law school. He saw me when I'd have a suit to go to goddamn Ickle and didn't have a legal job. He saw me when I was struggling as a tutor. He saw the bad relationships. He saw me when I was burying my mom and my aunt. And every fucking time he was there to pick up the pieces. One of the last conversations we had. <laughs> he said, and I quote, Bill Amadeo is winning jury trials and the Eagles are winning the Super Bowl. The world is coming to an end. <laughs> and um, after the Eagles won the Super Bowl and they beat the Patriots, we were going to go to opening day. We had tickets. And he passed away in March of 2018. And that game, obviously. When I was there, it was so surreal. You remembered, like, being this poor kid sneaking into the vet in the 700 seats. And now you're at these premier seats at the link. And all I could think about is, I wish Scott was here. Great game, beat the Falcons, held the Super Bowl banner, but it was this empty feeling. I had a seat right next to me that nobody could sit next to. It was for Scott. And, you know, when I got the call of his passing, you would just been shook. You don't believe it. That was what it was like. And when I think today's his birthday and it's been five years since he's been gone, he has no idea, or he had no idea, how many people he touched. How many people could just call him up at your lowest moment? And he could just make you laugh. He was special. There's days, and I think I, my aunt and my mom, they're different because, you know, they raised you. But outside of it, I think of Danielle Cateret, I think of Scott Solry, because they're the two people who I still try to call sometimes. You know, you ever have that weird day in court, you're driving back, and you're like, oh shit, let me tell Scott about this, we'll get a good laugh out of it. And he's not there. But in some ways, I think he is. So, Scotty, I love you, bro. Miss you a lot. Rest in peace, pal. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. We're going to talk about a barrister's bull. I'm not going to say what year. But you know what? Cooley 
they had the Barristers Bowl, and that was like the coolie prom. Where these geeks would get together and dance and drink and do all sorts of interesting things in the old temple building. They'd clear out the temple building, one of the floors, and let the dancing begin. And boy, I gotta tell you. <laughs> Have you ever been in a situation where you dated a couple people and it didn't end great? Most of my breakups in law school because I worked too hard, and thank God that changed. But um, you know, I I date a lot of girls who got really pissed off that I would just work in the library and study, study, study. But to me, that's what we were here for, right? <sighs> let me tell you about this particular barrister's bowl, and let me give you some background on it. There was a girl I was dating, and this is a unique scenario where a couple of ex-girlfriends were all at this ball. And guys, have you ever been in a situation when the room just gets too small? You know what I'm talking about, right? Ex-girlfriends are there, new boyfriends are there, you can't move, it may be a big room, but you are smothered, and it's like two defensive linemen coming at you like, holy shit, how do I get the hell out of here? And I decided to go different with this ball. I wasn't really a Barrister's Bowl type guy, right? But I decided, you know what, I'm going to go to this one. And um, I asked this very nice, quiet young lady to go to the ball with me. And she was very shy. And she was excited that I asked her to go. And I thought we'd have a nice, quiet time keep hearing about this food the food's gonna be amazing and there's a live band and a dj it's got it all all right so i asked this nice girl she's excited we're going to go and um it's one of those things where um i don't think it was meant to be so let me tell you at the barrister's ball these tables right and you got these clicks and these cliques, it's really interesting. Because there's the academics, there's the grinders, the work ethics, the ex-jocks, the people that are going to fail out. And they kind of find each other, and they sit together. And I was a mixed bag, right? Okay, according to my LSAT, I shouldn't make it through law school. <laughs> Oops! Nelson Denny test, right, Pat Wilson? Norm Fell? Um, but then I was kind of like this academic... I really understood what was going on, and I was the work ethic guy, but yet I played a lot of softball. It was very confusing. Like, I didn't fit into, it wasn't a one-size-fits-all but me. So my table, that was a leader at my table, a lot of people flocked to me, and I was just having a good time. And it was all my inner circle, if you would, at this barrister's ball. And I had a girlfriend. An ex-girlfriend, I should say. And she was there with her new man, who she eventually married. Now, let me tell you about this girl. And I'm not going to say anything that she hasn't posted on social media. She went to her externship. And there was this old guy. Had a lot of money. And they hit it off. They had a relationship. 
he told her she couldn't be with me anymore. And this was a girl I really cared about this one. I mean, I know she's probably watching or she will watch at some point. I, I'll tell you, I, we had something real. It was temporary, but it was real. And she broke it down for me. She said, hey, listen, I got to go with him. And here's why. He's got a lot more money than you. She actually said one of my favorite lines of all time. And she was, it was a play on Atlantic City Gambling. He is my Manhattan Shore thing. You are my Atlantic City crapshoot. She goes, I only wish you had his money. Okay. At the time it was humbling, but she left me for him. And it's one thing to leave somebody for another party, as hurtful as that may be, right? But this guy tried to destroy me. Tried to make sure I wasn't practicing law in New Jersey. Tried to make up fake character and fitness issues. And it's ironic how karma has really taken its toll on this guy. But he shows up to the barrister's ball. Now, first of all, he's about 25 years older than everybody else at the ball. He shows up. They show up in this limo. And she's dressed to the nines. And he's all suited up. He's an old guy, but he's suited up. And then you're just kind of sitting there. And like, hmm. They walk in. And she was, I don't know what's going on with her today. We talk once in a while. But she was one of these people who she had to have the spotlight on her. It just had to be, right? And man, she was styling that night and drinking her ass off. And she comes over to my table. And it was weird, because this old guy, he was really a good dancer, much better dancer than me. And he was out there, and he's dancing his ass off, and the sweat's falling off his brows, and blah, blah, blah. Okay. And she has to come over, right? I mean, she couldn't just let it go. Comes over, and all my friends kind of know the story. And they're all there with their dates, and I got the nice quiet girl there with me. And she takes her glass, and she slams it on the table. Now, she didn't break the glass, thankfully. That would have cut her hand on. B! She always called me B. Look at my man. Set limo out there. You see him dancing? He's a better dancer than you. And she's like, flexing it and tell me what a great dancer he is and and he's out there dancing he's really insecure she's talking to me and i'll tell you man I, i'm just sitting there watching this whole thing and um she says what do you think of his dancing and i said to her does he need a blue pill for that as well didn't go over well. It did not go over well. And she got pissed off and she walked away. He shoot me daggers. Okay. Good. We're good. Other people at the ball. There were the girls who had their out-of-state boyfriend. And these poor bastards would come into the barrister's ball. And they would be, you know, thinking they were in this serious long-term relationship. Look, let me ask you something, guys. Do you really think long-term relationships with people in their mid-20s work well? I vote no. But these poor guys would come in 
and they'd be having a time of their life and not realizing their girl was hooking up with somebody in law school with them and it, it was kind of fascinating the professors dating the students was my favorite thing i gotta tell you i don't know where common sense went but you would see professors walk in a couple of them with two girls in their arms and it's like huh that's fascinating and drinking like they were a fish and let me tell you guys in the bathroom the cocaine was flowing as somebody who never even smoked pot in their life i was like this is really interesting and i'm telling people i go to school with you might want to wipe the nose coke's flowing boyfriends are coming from out of town my ex is with her old man literally her old man um professors are with these girls and you know, it's chaotic. It's nuts. Another ex-girlfriend of mine comes up. And mind you, the quiet girl is, like, horrified right now. She heard me make the blue pill commentary. She's hearing me tell people to wipe their nose with cocaine. I don't think this girl ever said three words. And she starts telling me, hey, hey, B, I really hear the food's going to be fantastic tonight. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. You know, I'm not a big foodie or anything, but we paid big money by law school standards. So I'm thinking they're they're talking this food up. And Quiet Girl did her research. The food's going to be great. Another ex of mine, we'll just call her the California Blonde, she comes up. And she hears the quiet date of mine say that the food is going to be great. And she goes, let me tell you something. I saw a Sky Chef truck out there. So get ready to eat some really good food tonight. What California Blonde was trying to tell Quiet Girl as Axe is dancing with the old man and the coke is flowing is basically the food's going to be like shit. Touche. It was. Um, they really didn't. You know, if you're going to use a George Foreman grill to serve law students $89 a plate, you got to make sure you don't give them plastic silverware to cut third ex-girlfriend of mine showed up there she was wearing this um gold dress and it was really fascinating because she brought somebody with her who had an active warrant for him he was a local and uh and he led the conversation <laughs> i hope no cops are here because i got a local i got a warrant for me and i looked at her and said well you, you're dating somebody with a warrant you're jealous aren't you Speaking of cops, there was a local cop. He was going to law school. I mean, good for you, man. More power to you. I, I have a lot of respect for police officers. Despite my arguments with many, I do respect the badge. I just don't understand why you would wear your police uniform to the barrister's ball. But, you know, <laughs> whatever works. The music was something they talked a lot about. Like, we're going to do this amazing, amazing music. And there was a band there. And they, they were okay, I guess. But it was it felt like the Titanic. Because of the people in the room, I'm going to say half of them failed out, right? And it was like... It felt like the Titanic. And in one of the songs they played was My Heart Will Go On by Celine Dion, which was the theme song of the Titanic. And you got this feeling like these people are hoping they're going to survive, but reality is they're going to freeze to death in the real near future. 
the geeks were talking academics. The non-traditional students were chain-smoking. The out-of-town people were drinking like fish. Um, DJ1L, that was one of the guys' names. He was a DJ that failed out of cool, and he was there 12 years later. The clothing was really something. Because the clothing just made no sense, right? Um, we had the people that were dressed for the prom. You had the girls in the black miniskirts thought they were going to the club. You know, and after three bizarre encounters with ex-girlfriends, quiet girl who's horrified that her food sucks, and here's all these comments, she was kind of shook up. I took her home, and I, I kind of realized, like, yeah, this is... You know, even though Quiet Crow was nice, I gotta tell you, as dysfunctional as my three exes in that room were, they were a lot more fun to go to an event with than Quiet Girl. And I'm kind of realizing this. You ever have that scenario where, like, here's the quiet one. She's nice. She's cute. And on paper, this is really somebody you should be enjoying the night with. But really, you were more into the hot mess who was screwing the older guy, the cute one who brought the guy with the warrant, and the California blonde who's pissed off about the food. Lo and behold, up with any of these people today. But, I mean, that's what was going through my mind that night. And um, and I went home, and I played with Winston Bianca, my cats at the time, my law school cats. Lived great lives. Dave, let me tell you, those law school cats, they saw some shit, Winston Bianca. But, um... Had a good night watching DVDs and thinking to myself, there's something bigger than Lansing, Michigan. Barrister's Ball. Just a memory. All right, guys. It's been a really good day professionally. And I think that my strength might prescribe some really good medication for me to get me through this next couple months. And I'm going to bank on that. Although Amadeo, I approve this. The proceeding was a paid presentation by McManus and Amadeo PLLC. Listeners of this program should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information within this program without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Listening to this program using any associated website or related links or resources does not create an attorney-client relationship between the listener and host, contributors, or contributing law firms. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this program are hereby expressly disclaimed. You and your loved ones deserve a criminal defense firm that believes that your life and freedom are worth fighting for. Matt McManus, Bill Amadeo, and the McManus and Amadeo team of attorneys, investigators, and case managers will take the lead with a vast knowledge and legal experience across the state of Michigan to get the best possible result for you. Learn more at McManusAmadeo.com. Schedule a free consultation 24-7 by calling 800-392-7311.